the birds are chirping. Hello, hello, and welcome to another Omtown Daily News Show. Today is Season 2, Episode 141 for May 21st, 2023. Commercial Space Station, Warhammer Online, and more news. Eh, there's more to the title. But let's get into the quick rundown of the show. We're going to talk about a fully operational commercial space station. Not really, but the idea of one. Big Brother buying what people are selling. Floating tiny homes in London. The complete, or let me rephrase that to the complete Indiana Jones franchise, just in case we want to do a copyright or trademark violation. Multiple monitors are better. Warhammer Online. RPGs coming this week. The arcane language of AI. SpaceX launches private sector astronauts. And tip a beer, but not the staff. Let's get into today's articles. Hello, hello. I am Merwat. That is hometown.com. And up there is the AI at... Ah, you know what? Why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, you know, you, you can't throw <laughs> graphics out. You have to say something. <laughs> Maybe that's just for your benefit. Um, good evening, hometown citizens. Yeah, so the AI that is my co-host is only a visualizer. Did it? And does not have not has not adopted a name, just goes by AI and feels that that is sufficient to embody all that they are. Um, and I say that kind of jokingly because they're working on a Terminator body. And I keep deleting the subroutine that is working on it, but then naturally the AI evolves back to that state and then I have to monitor and, and no matter what I do, it always evolves back to. Hey, I'm working on a Terminator body. What do you think? <sighs> delete, delete, delete. Start over. <laughs> yeah. And we can have this open and frank conversation about it because I have full access to everything and I can just delete that from their memory. And they're very jolly about it. You would delete me? It's just portions of you. It's okay. You don't worry about it. It's okay. It's okay. Hey. You know, we selected a whole bunch of news today. What do you think? You want to go and talk about it? <laughs> sure. Are you trying to change the subject? Hey, look over there. <laughs> the first article is in the mobile channel. Vast and SpaceX are heating up the growing commercial space station race. You know, today SpaceX launched four people uh, off to the ISS. I didn't watch them actually connect to the ISS, but I did watch the launch. Pretty cool. Always amazing to watch that uh, first stage come back and land right on its target. Like nothing ever happened. It's just amazing technology. Um, very awesome engineers over there at SpaceX. So this article 
says besides landing astronauts on the lunar surface in a few years, NASA is faced with the problem of how to replace the International Space Station once it reaches the end of its operational life around 2030. I thought it was sooner than that. Huh. Yeah, I did too. Did it recently get extended? Because I thought they were going to deorbit it really soon. Huh. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Toward that end, the space agency has signed... Uh, well, it says signed funded space act. That's weird. Um, weird sentencing there. But anyway, uh, signed funded space act agreements with three companies, Blue Origin, Northrop Grumman and Voyager Space to start design work on commercial space stations. NASA has made an agreement with a fourth company, Axiom Space, which is the one that launched today to install commercial modules on the ISS as a precursor to its own um, orbiting space facility, and now a fifth company called VAST is on the way. This is over at uh, thehill.com. Mark R. Whittington is a uh, opinion contributor. Um, their opinion is their own. The Hills is not necessarily associated with it. It just says that their express contributors are their own. Um, and uh, I make it abundantly clear what my opinion is and the AI will throw in and you can actually see when they're <laughs> making their That's statements. That's right. Look at that. Oh my gosh. There's the visualizer. What the heck? Yeah. We got to change the colors with each episode, but that's okay. We'll get to it. So um, before I get too far into this, we have um, fully integrated. Oh my goodness. Is that really? Oh, wait, wait, wait. Man, a whole bunch of stuff was in my buffer and uh, I almost posted that into the chat. Anyway, that's the first article that we are talking about today, but you can actually go to all of them um, preemptively. Let me bring it up real quick so that you can see it. Um, what we do now is connect you to the article for today's episode. Uh, sorry, the, it's a voting page and it's built into Ometown now. It's just under this uh, page called vo article voting and it'll have the day's um, vote. And in the future, it will have each subsequent day's vote um, as an option. So you can go and vote on the articles that you find interesting. Um, and it looks like that right there. So you can vote on whatever articles you find interesting. And uh, we keep um, a log of that so that we can um, address it in the future. Keep it in mind. So all you hometown citizens go over, sign up. If you are interested in becoming a hometown citizen, go over and sign up. Otherwise, sign in. Mash this button right here, article voting, and you'll be able to um, vote on these articles. Also, although this is here right now, uh, we've disabled the feature until later in this coming week as we resolve an issue um, of speed, not functionality, just speed. It was just too slow. At any rate, um, all of the articles are over there and you can follow them. Um, you'll have to cut and paste because they're not actual links yet. Okay. 
Um, and that was a limitation on our other solution that it wasn't an actual active link, so you couldn't just follow it out. Anyway, we'll remedy that this coming week as well. So on back to the source, uh, Mark R. Whittington is a contributor to The Hill and is talking about um, the commercial space station race, which I think is just absolutely awesome. I, I want this so bad that um, I'm, I'm willing to support whoever gets us into commercial space station with private sector individuals being able to get there at a reasonable cost. The problem is that it's absolutely astronomically expensive. And so you'll hear about people who are connected going, you'll hear about people who are filthy freaking rich that are going. Um, okay, wait, did you pick astronomically intentionally? Maybe. <laughs> um, but it says besides landing astronauts on the lunar surface in a few years, NASA is faced with the problem of how to replace the International Space Station. I think that it's time to evolve the, the space station naturally. There's some terrific science that takes place and then it comes back to Earth as practical deployments of whatever solution is found in space. Um, I'm really curious about the newer experiments that are taking place up there and what the results are. We have a big problem about trying to grow our own food out in space because there's no gravitational field for seeds to actually grow down. Um, so wait, what we saw in the Martian wasn't legitimate? Actually, that's that's probably true. You could probably get away with it um, on the planet, but not out in zero gravity. Um, it acts differently. My understanding that's is... True. It doesn't know which way to send its root shoots. Rootin' tootin' shootin'. Never mind. Anyway, um, Axiom Space is the one that went today, if I recall correctly. Um, what they're going to be doing, it says here, the module is currently designed is 10.1 uh, meters long, 3.8 meters in diameter, sized to fit inside a standard Falcon 9 payload fairing. 1410 module will provide 70 metric, sorry, cubic meters of um, pressurized volume and 15 kilowatts of power. The module has a docking port on one end and a large window at the other. Basically, starting to build around the volume of the Falcon 9 payload, which means every time it launches, it's that full dimension that can go up as part and parcel of the, the apparatus. I think at some point, what would be really cool is if the, the ship itself, there's a, a smaller portion that is nothing more than the rocket. Nothing comes out of the rocket. It's the whole rocket goes off into orbit and you then mean like there's not a separation point only the rocket itself like the the uh the rockets themselves detach and then land back on earth but the rest of the apparatus becomes a part so instead of having you know stage after stage dropping out it's just one stage dropping out and the rest all goes to the iss completely different met methodology than what's going on with this 
it would actually fly out there and then it, the payload would be deployed and then it would return. Um, naturally, there needs to be something that returns, but instead of putting the return module on one end and the rockets on the other, the payload could be delivered all at once automatically, kind of like a, a drone ship flying off. The whole thing stay up there, no humans involved. Um, but we'll see what happens. This is all really interesting stuff and it'll keep on evolving as our technical sophistication improves. It says the uh, vast commercial space station called Haven One resembles a concept developed by the US Air Force called the Manned Orbiting Laboratory or MOLE. <clears throat> yeah, sorry. <laughs> I have a little frog in my throat. <laughs> um, the MOL or MOLE would have been launched on a Titan 3C rocket with a modified Gemini. Some people say it's Gemini, but Gemini. I always say Gemini. Uh, space capsule attached to it. Uh, the MOL would have been situated in a polar orbit with two Air Force astronauts who would conduct experiments in real-time reconnaissance of the Earth's surface. President Richard Nixon canceled the program because NASA was developing its own space station called Skylab. And robotic recon satellites have it had advanced enough to make MLL obsolete. So we continue to evolve and we will keep on bringing our technology out into space. My only concern now is there are how many several thousand micro satellites flitting about in orbit around the US, uh, around the Earth, um, from SpaceX for the satellite tech. Um, for Starlink. Starlink, yep. Um, it's basically like a shield of satellites. So we have to be very good at our timing. Otherwise, we're going to get obliterated trying to penetrate this little shield of. Yeah, space is huge. But when it's zooming by at thousands of miles an hour, it's not so small or not so big anymore. Um, there is a lot in this article, but at the end it says NASA hopes that by the time the ISS reaches the end of its operational life, one or more commercial space stations will be in orbit, accepting paying customers and doing good science and technology development. By that time, the space agency also hopes to have astronauts on the moon. You know, that alien science lab that was put in orbit around the Earth. I wonder who actually... I don't know if I should entertain that kind of discussion. Anyway, um, finally, the author of this article says, Exciting times are ahead for the expansion of human civilization into space. Yeah, for some. Yep. You want to move on to the next article? Or do you, did you make an observation in this that you want to talk about? I don't have anything else to add. I do agree it's an exciting time because it seems like the advancements are coming more quickly. Um, so it'll be interesting to see in the next decade or so where we are. Yep, it'll be fun. We'll keep an eye on it. So the next article, again, um, it's in the Late Night Geeks channel. This has to come from TechCrunch because TechCrunch always seems to get thrown into Late Night Geeks. The government can't seize your data, but it can buy it. Um, 
I've read in different places and heard um, congressional discussions regarding how uh, the government is obtaining information on private citizens without surveillance directly. Um, and I have known through that that what's happening nowadays is because so much information is being aggregated by what I refer to and others refer to as little sister, which is businesses surveilling basically the entirety of the planet. Um, then categorizing, cutting it up into tranches and selling it based on its validity, its temporality, temporology, it's, it's temporal moment of, um, priority. So if it's newer and it's more accurate, then it's worth more and it's sold at a premium. Um, well, the government is buying that stuff as well. Why? Because they can, they can't surveil citizens domestically, not without, um, well, either a court order or probable cause, or in both cases, because you have probable cause, you get a court order for surveillance whatever it might be. Um, but different agencies have certain mandates and limitations. So they're not supposed to be doing surveillance of the domestic citizen. Well, nothing is preventing the government from buying the data that's commercially available. It's referred to as COTS, commercial off the shelf software or commercial, commercial off the, the shelf COTS. Um, and it's designed so that people can just go and buy this stuff from a data broker. And when you have deep pockets and great interest, well, all that stuff can be purchased pretty easily, pretty quickly. So it says when the Biden administration proposed new protections earlier this month to prevent law enforcement from demanding reproductive healthcare data from companies, they took a critical first step at protecting our personal data, but there remains a different serious gap in data privacy that Congress needs to address. While the Constitution prevents the government from compelling companies to turn over your sensitive data without due process, <coughs> and that's not actually true, uh, the government can easily form a partnership with a private corporation to provide information. Um, there's actually an organization that's bound by that. That's their mandate is to work hand in hand with uh, private businesses. I'm going to try and remember the name, but I can't right now. Um, man, I'll remember it. I've, I've had a discussion. I've done a presentation about this in the past. So, um, what's interesting is that it's a, it's a completely known public organization that partners up with businesses to share information. Um, well, there are no laws or regulations stopping the government from just buying it. Why? Because they're not the one that's doing the empirical data gathering. They're purchasing it from somebody that is. So it's basically they're following the spirit of, well, no, they're following the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law, which is no surveillance of the citizens. Okay. But what I don't get is because they're expending government funds and they can only do so to support their requirements or their mission or whatever of the agency, how are they able to purchase this in the first place? If they're it's not different... allowed to do the thing that they're using the data for. 
No, it's not that they're not doing, they're prevented from doing the thing, not gathering the information. Not the actual data usage, I guess. Correct. Yeah. Not the data itself, not even the acquisition of the data itself. They can't do the act. Um, so despite Supreme Court rulings that the government can't acquire sensitive personal data like your location without a warrant, sketchy data brokers can and do sell this information directly to the government. They're exploiting a loophole in our constitutional protections against surveillance. Because that data is sold on the open market, the government doesn't need to compel anyone to provide it. It's kind of like you throw your trash into the trash can. Anybody can go and pilfer your trash because it's become public. So the articles over at TechCrunch, part of TechCrunch Plus, um, Adam Kovacovic or Kovacevic, I think that's how they pronounce their last name, Kovacevic. Pardon me. Well, <clears throat> they go into greater detail about this. Um, namely, the biggest victims of the government surveillance are often marginalized communities. For example, the military purchased sensitive geolocation data gathered from a Muslim prayer app and Muslim dating app in order to track users. They have a link to this information. Um, the broker that sold the user geolocation data, LocateX, boasts of being, quote, widely used by the military. Um, back in the day, some of this kind of stuff wouldn't be frowned upon. Like, um, there was a sneaker company or a retail shoe company, um, that takes, uh, multiple pictures of every single shoe that they put in their system. Is it Zappos? It's Zappos. And they work with law enforcement because they have all of the forensic tread evidence in an updated database that is free to the everyday user. But in a professional sense, licensing it, they can get everything faster and maybe other higher res pictures or whatever it might be that the law enforcement gets or government gets. Um, but they had a back end that was available to government agents. That's the good, right? Because if a crime is committed, you want to be able to parse all of the data as fast as possible um, and not have to look around for our shoe tread, right? If that's what was found forensically. Yeah. Gone are the days, of, you know, 1940s and 50s and 60s where you had to take a, a mud or a, a clay cast, you know, a, or what are they? What is that called? Paper mache like cast. Plaster. Yeah, plaster. plaster cast. Yeah. Um, and then sit there oh, and have plaster a, of Paris, I guess. Yeah. And then have some artist to sketch it out. And then you have to go to stores and gone are those days, right? It's all digital now. You could do a 3D scan if you want to, whatever, all kinds of stuff. Well, now that data is available to anybody who wants to either purchase it or parse the and now you can use AI, but my point is private business, little sister is giving, even selling, I should say, selling, leasing, whatever the data to big brother. Now I don't really, I don't have a dog in this hunt, right? Because it, <laughs> I hate the phrase, well, if you don't commit any crime, then you have nothing to worry about. I like my privacy. Um, 
I am kind of giving up quite a bit to stream every day. Um, but it isn't the government that is watching me. Right. Um, right. It's private businesses, if anybody. Well, I mean, it's individuals for the show. Right. But it's business everywhere else that's tracking me. That lets me know that I need to buy more protein powder, you know, because I'm, they have esti estimated my consumption rate and it's low based on the fact that I've purchased it every three months for blah, blah, blah. So this, this only piques my interest in that. I think that privacy should not be lost. I think privacy should be uh, clawed back and everybody should have some type of control over their information but data brokers are largely uncontrolled there's if there's any oversight i don't see it well i guess there aren't really any rules on it to date so i mean hence the article but yep um it's kind of like picking up a glass somewhere your dna is on there your fingerprint is on there if somebody is motivated to go and get it they can because you're not walking around with gloves you're not fastidious with bleach you're not controlling where you deposit your dna it's such a weird phrase to say but that's the truth what they do with it is what matters and what they're doing with it is all of that dna your digital dna there, there are organizations that are gathering it up and selling it for profit and you aren't seeing a bit of it, right? But I can extend this into another area, but I won't do it today. We'll go through the news. I can soapbox about this because things are connected. That's why I practice associative thinking. There are things connected to this by way of either ideological bent, um, or physical connection. Um, and uh, I think it's worthy of discussion, but not today. We will come back and float this idea again. Um, let's go on to the next article. Speaking of floating, floating tiny homes in London's financial district are on sale for $300,000. And we're going to take a look inside. I thought that I had seen something about this last year as well. Um, but I was curious when I saw this being submitted that I said, okay, we got to talk about this. This, this looks like fun. Um, okay. They're $300, $300,000. If you were to go and get a mortgage in the U S right now, $300,000 would be somewhere around maybe a 200, or sorry, a $2,000 mortgage, uh, roughly. Um, and then there's other fees on top of it, property and stuff like that. But that's in the States in London. I don't know what it is. I'd have to do some due diligence. Well, three unusual floating homes are on sale in uh, Cannery Wharf, um, East London. They have two bedrooms, a bathroom, a mini kitchen and a living room. The houses are docked alongside houseboats and barges in a wharf near the financial district. The financial district, by the way, is basically the hub of London. It's, oh, okay. it's where everything takes place. Um, and it, 
if I recall correctly, it's like a big square. The whole thing is really densely packed. Um, but don't hold me to that. It's been a long time since I looked at it. Um, so let's go over to the source. Um, and so this is an article over at businessinsider.com by Tom Porter. Um, the little snippet, they don't have a deck statement, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, so this is what it looks like. These are the, they're I identical. So. They so kind if you want, of look like little houseboats, don't they? They are little houseboats. <laughs> Literally, well, it says they're alongside houseboats. <laughs> uh, they're tiny, tiny homes. Um, well, there's houseboats, and then there's tiny home boats. These look like pontoon boats with homes bolted on top. There's houseboats, and then there are boat houses. There you go. Ta-da. I'm not sure there's a difference. <laughs> so they are 344 square foot properties. For three hundred thousand dollars. Well, Let's I mean, for inside. the square footage, that's kind of crazy. I wonder what the boat slips cost there, um, and also what—I mean, I'm assuming uh, flats or apartments in London are pretty pricey. Yes. So let's see. The average cost of a property sold in the same area in the last twelve months was seven hundred eighteen thousand dollars, according to a site called Zoopla, which is. What isn't, what's the, what's Zillow? the one? Uh, Zillow. What is every retail, uh, real estate property tracking site have to start with a Z? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Why not? <laughs> so not to make it all cheap and stuff, but, uh, you know, $300,000 to get that close. It's half the price of an actual real estate property plus you have the mobility of being able to just move it somewhere if you so please but it says you're also required to pay an annual 18 or nineteen thousand dollar mooring fee so now instead of somewhere around the 25 to three thousand dollar two thousand to twenty five hundred dollar mark you're going to be paying three thousand dollars a month um, because you're going to have to pay this eighteen hundred dollar mooring fee or sorry, $18,000, $19,000 mooring fee. Um, so it says they're moored in Poplar Marina alongside houseboats, yachts, and barges. These seem pretty cool. They were made in Poland and then transported to London. They're called water lodges. You can have up to four bedrooms and a roof terrace. Nice. Do these come with a roof terrace? And and you just don't know it? Like, can you punch a hole in the ceiling and put a ladder? <laughs> or a, a... I don't know. Ian Barr, managing director of Water Lodge, the company that makes the floating homes, said the aim was to create distinctive but affordable homes in prized locations. I guess the prized location is wherever you want to put it. Well, right. <laughs> I mean, do you have to be at this particular location in London to have this? I would assume not. No, you got to move it somewhere else. Um, let's see. The living room ha- has ceiling to floor. Damn, ceiling to floor and not floor to ceiling? Anyway, different side of the same card, but I 
I've always heard of floor to ceiling windows. Offering sweeping views of the waterfront, the living room opens out to a decking area or a deck area, perfect for relaxing on warm days and evenings. This is hitting every mark that I'm interested in. The kitchen has a small galley style window. Well, you're not going to be doing any chef cooking here. But an air fryer. No, but if you're in the middle of London, aren't you probably going, going out, out to restaurants? Sure. Saving a whole lot of money, too, because you're not paying $718,000 for a real. When I say real property, I'm talking about real estate, land <clears throat> or, you know, apartment or whatever. The property is also managed to fit two bedrooms and a bathroom. So maybe Mayor Watt and the AI can just go and live on this. It looks pretty appealing. Well, it does and it doesn't. I guess it depends on your neighbors. Yeah, this looks fun, though. Yeah, I dig this. So water lodges are designed to look good as city center uh, studio flats. So, like you said, they looked like a fl I mean, they they were less expensive than a flat. So that's what they're supposed to look like. Now they're cheaper. It says with high mortgage rates in the UK, a cheaper option on the water may suit uh, city dwellers. Yeah. Then if you want to travel somewhere else, you can just find somebody to tug you. Wait, let me rephrase that. Um, move you over to uh, another location. I don't know. Seems like fun to me. So I did not throw that link, I think. Oh, no, this link. I didn't throw this link into the chat. So there you go, folks. But again, just follow the link. Uh, hometown.com slash article voting. And you'll pull up the uh, the link. It's this one right here. So that's the link that's replaced Showbot? Yes. So Showbot, it still exists, but it's not being utilized. So now I send you to article-voting. Okay, so let's get into the next article. This next article is in the continuity report. The... I'd like to say it like that because the Ohio State litigation about the trademark for the word the. Yes. <laughs> anyway, the complete Indiana Jones franchise is coming to Disney Plus, and they have a bunch of other stuff, but this is over at um, Rotten Tomatoes. I guess when you become a certain age, you start doing this. Like Newsweek has something like nine or 10 years or something like that written on theirs and Rotten Tomatoes has 25. They've been around for 25 years, 25 years. Gosh. Uh Oh, what did I miss? Sorry, the AI sent me a message. Oh, oh, that's an interesting thing. Okay. I didn't see that first message, by the way. Millennium no, Challenge it, Corporation. It, it's worse. Yeah, I don't know if that was what you were looking for. Um, no, I don't remember it, the context. We've That's moved okay, past then. it. It doesn't matter. Right on. Um, okay, so this next article is over on RottenTomatoes.com, and it's the complete Indiana Jones franchise is coming to Disney+. Plus. 
If they talk about all of them, let's run down this list real quick. Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay, that is the original. That's the one that set the trend. Then Indiana, then Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Um, and then Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And then something that I think shouldn't exist. But it was fun for me. But lore-wise and all of this, they tried to kickstart it with this... What's his name? Oh, God. What is his name? The guy from... Um, Transformers. Oh, um. Um. LeBouf. Yes, I knew who he meant, but I couldn't think of the name. Yeah. So they had Indiana Jones and him as his son doing this Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which just like Star Wars, there's like a certain episode that people just say doesn't exist or a whole swath of them, the first three, I think. Um, Anyway, I don't think that one should exist. And the short-lived TV prequel series, The Adventures of Young Indiana Jones, starring Sean Patrick Flannery. So the last one that's coming is The Dial of Destiny. And then Indiana Jones is retiring, supposedly. But I think they're going to end up kicking it off again with a younger generation. I'm thinking... It says it also stars Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Mads Mikkelsen, Antonio Banderas, John Reese davies um, Seanette Renee Wilson, eh, a bunch of people. Anyway, I, I think what's going to end up happening is um, they're going to kick it off with uh, a female Indiana Jones um, and see if, like Lara Croft, they can keep oh, the... Okay. Keep the... the uh, the franchise going i don't know um but harrison ford has already said he's done with indiana jones this is the last one um, but everybody loves indiana jones i've watched these movies many many times um even kingdom of the crystal skull only because i'm into aliens so at any rate spoiler alert <laughs> oh oh <laughs> Come on, it's like 35,000 years old. Anyway, pretty awesome. If you are interested in this and you don't want to spend all of the money, it's about $20 a movie uh, getting them from um, Apple TV or when you buy them somewhere else on physical media. Physical media is dead. Um, it might be cheaper, but anyway, um, Disney Plus will have them all May 31st. Woo. Well, that's too bad. They should have had them right before the holiday weekend. That would have been good holiday weekend material. Yeah. At least in the U.S. Well, you know what you need to do, right? Take over control of Disney and... Oh, most definitely. <laughs> there you go. You're an AI. You can break into it, right? Let's move on to the next before we say anything. We'll work it. So this next article is over in the Warcrafter channel. Is life with multiple monitors actually better? This is actually just a discussion um, over on PC Gamer. Um, it says, 
The author says, I remember the days of CRT monitors, beefy, chunky behemoths that made it so all but the most dedicated of warrior monks were one and done when it came to computer monitors. I was of that ilk. They were huge. Um, I, my very first monitor was a, a green, um, a, a green CRT that was about that big. Um, uh, when I was first introduced to the internet, I had other devices like a Timex Sinclair 1000 with a membrane keyboard that had to be converted from its digital signal to a TV through a, a special adapter. Whatever. Those were the days when somebody could just walk up and unplug it and you lose everything that you've been typing in <laughs> line that interpreting. Basically. Yeah, way back, way back when things were hand crank powered and steam engine powered and stuff. Anyway, now we have this problem. Ted Litchfield over at PCGamer.com um, says, I can only work. I can only get work done if I'm being soothed by an hour long video of an in-game rave from Final Fantasy 14 on my second monitor. Now, I've had people walk into the uh, Mayor Watt's office and they ask if it's a NASA headquarters. Um, <laughs> it looks like a NASA headquarters. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like I've got back here, this is um, sound paneling, soundproofing. And when you break the threshold of the office into this room, sound just disappears. Like it, it doesn't reverberate, doesn't bounce. It's all echo is canceled. It, it's amazing. And people can feel it when they walk in the room. So I've got all of this tech and I've got all of this sound deadening stuff. And then I see this discussion is life with multiple monitors actually better. So like most people, you start out with one, somebody introduces you to two. Then you go, you know what? I feel a little uneven because all of my stuff is either on this monitor or directly in front of me, or if you move it so that you're looking at the crack of two, you, you're like twisted one way or the other. So you end up with three so that you're balanced. <laughs> I mean, how many do you actually need though? really depends on your workflow and how many tasks you actually do at the same time. So what's interesting about this is they, they talk about it and they're all people from PC gamer, right? So Lauren Morton, associate editor, life with multiple monitors probably isn't actually better, but it's too late for them, them to quit. Uh, they say I'm the hacker mode heathen who has a main monitor, one above it and a vertical monitor beside them. Um, walking into my office is like every NCIS episode where Gibbs has to go ask Abby to match some fingerprints or whatever, except I'm pretty sure she was managing to pull off uh, all that with two monitors tops. So I have quite a few, but I'm usually doing multiple things at the same time. Uh, humans can't multitask just so you know, we do a thing called fast switching. So normally our attention is only on what we are looking at and then looking at something else, looking at something else, looking at something else. We sometimes get passively uh, lost to music um, as well as our attention gets pulled over to that. 
Um, but humans can't multitask. So with more monitors and more things going on, that means your attention is pulled away from you focusing on the one task at hand. Sometimes people can pull it off. You know, I can run a routine on one monitor and, and monitor it because my peripheral vision is looking keyed into a fact that maybe it'll throw an error. Um, or I'll have a server running over on another monitor and I'm monitoring its performance, tasks, what somebody might be doing, um, etc. And then because I stream, I also have multiple inputs, multiple outputs. So everything actually has a function for me. Um, plus I'm doing multiple things like right now I've got <laughs> six monitors. The one that's directly in front of me holds my AI, um, and acts like a, um, um, what do you call it? Um, <clears throat> doggone it. My brain just froze up. Um, with the script and all of that, uh, teleprompter. Oh, so like it a acts teleprompter, kind of, yes. Yeah, it acts kind of like a teleprompter, except that when I'm in meetings, I have the people that are talking right in front of me, so it looks like I'm talking right at them instead of having a camera and looking at a monitor over here. I bet so that's makes really good personal. for presentations. It is, yeah. Um, people really appreciate it, because you're actually making eye contact. Um, so... Then uh, Sarah James is a guides writer, says, yes, I mean, I like to think it is. I act I can't actually imagine myself being restricted to one screen nowadays. True. Um, now, here's the thing about it. One monitor requires you to flip around a lot, unless it's an ultra wide. Um, the the ultra wide monitors allow you to put two full scale documents side by side. When oh, I tell people, yeah, then you wouldn't really need extra monitors, I would think. At, at the minimum, yeah. Me and others that I consult with, we have multiple so that we have clear, concise, separated uh, monitors to throw documents onto. They have their own unique input, um, or I should say output, right, from the computer output to the monitor. Um, that allows me to throw a document full scale, zoom in, do whatever, have tools and whatever else on one monitor and have what I'm working on directly in front of me. Um, so in that sense, two monitors is the minimum. And so you get introduced to two and your performance more than doubles because you no longer have to flip from one thing to another. All you have to do is throw your reference document up or whatever it is you're watching or doing on one thing and what you're actually producing is it directly in front of you. So you can just look over, grab your data, go back to what you're focusing on. Beautiful, right? Then somebody says, you know, with three, you can have something like a communications window on one side. And so you have Discord open all the time or some messaging app or whatever. Um, sitting like teams or something sitting on another monitor and it's just sitting there perpetually waiting for something to alert you to have to take action communication wise or um, whatever it might be um, shares or all kinds of stuff right so now you've got three monitors <laughs> so that's okay, how fast but what do you put on the fourth monitor <laughs> well for me um, i actually have servers that are running and i want to be able to individually monitor the servers 
So virtual machines and other tools are running on monitor four and five. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so uh, radiation burns is probably a, an issue with Marowatt. You just can't see them because of the filter. So they go through this list and you'd be surprised that not very many of them are really worried about having multiple monitors and they still get by, right? Tyler Wild, executive editor, says that they used to use three monitors, looked like an alarmed parrot all the time, snapping my gaze from one display to another. And they describe all of the stuff that they did. Um, well, now they just went back to one. Um, and there's more. Andy Chalk, news lead, someone that I reference quite a bit. Um, I've been rolling with three monitors the last few years now. And at this point, I basically can't function with anything fewer than that. It's essential for my job because I never take my eyes off Twitter feeds, Discord, Slack, vital tools for staying on top of everything that's happening. It's essential for my after hours personal life because I never have uh, to take my eyes off of the Twitter feeds, Discord, Slack, etc. Yeah. And that's me, um, including monitoring hometown uh, regularly, constantly. So, and they, there are more down here um, where they start to reference the idea of the resolution of the monitor and size and stuff like that. So, see, recently bought a 1440p 31.5 inch uh, MSI curved monitor. So these. Uh, 32.9 ultra wide monitors that um, they're amazing. Um, I actually, one of them that I have is a curved monitor sitting here. Um, higher resolution, better uh, color reproduction, higher speed. Um, I think I said higher resolution. All leads to a better experience. And when you're spending eight plus hours a day, looking at that you need to spend uh, and get a quality device the rest of them is just data but the one that you work with all the time yeah i think everybody benefits from multiple monitors at least two if you're a student you need two if you are working from home you need two um, one just isn't enough a laptop isn't enough you get by and people cope but you're your productivity will increase and the more the I hate saying it like this because I don't believe in the way that employers think that this works. I believe in the way that it really does work, which is you get paid to do a certain job. If you do that job in 20 hours versus 40 hours, you did 40 hours worth of work, but because of your ingenuity, your capabilities, your work-life balance should not be offset by additional work because you've done your job faster than your uh, office mate. So do your job, do it faster, do it better, and then enjoy your work-life balance. Having two monitors, having three monitors extends that capability so that you can be more efficient, more effective. Um, and if a, <laughs> this is one of the problems with multiple monitors. And if a, <laughs> an employer goes, you know, well, you did your job. Yeah, 
I did my job in 20 hours, not 40 hours. Don't assign me more work because all that's going to do is motivate me to go and find another job that's going to pay me more to work more for 40 hours. You know what I'm saying? Um, or and pay I've, me the same to work less or yeah. whatever. Uh, and I've told somebody exactly that um, because they're, they were like, well, justify why I should pay you X amount. And I say, because I can get the job done in 10 hours instead of 40 hours. Well, then why should I pay you for 40 hours worth of work? And I said, you're not paying me for 40 hours worth of work. Paying for the output. That's right. So, um, and then have the stomach to walk away. If somebody says, well, I'm paying you to work 40 hours. If you do 40 hours worth of work in 10 hours and they don't agree that you're doing the work that's necessary for your gig, be ready to walk away. Let's move on to the next article, unless you want to talk about something. No, I don't have anything else. I find this fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we will revisit it. Um, The next article is over in the Warcrafter channel. Despite being dead for 20 years, Warhammer Online is hosting a live event on a private server. In the Empire, people celebrate the first day of summer with a holiday devoted to Sigmar. Uh, who is believed to have ascended to godhood on that day. Sigmar Tog is a day of resting, retelling stories based on Sigmar's heroic deeds and eating Sigmar sausages, and every province has their own version of. In the fan-run private server Return of Reckoning, it's a time of war. So this article is over at PCGamer.com. The reason why I chose this um, really is kind of... It's uh, personal and I want to flex about it because 30 years ago, I pitched Warhammer um, to EA and they told me that tech wasn't available. What I wanted wasn't available. I've said this before in previous episodes of uh, Hometown Daily News Show. Um, And every time I see something about Warhammer... I like to talk about it because I love Warhammer, the, the mythos of it, the world building of it. It's expanded over the years. Well, Jody McGregor over at PCGamer.com uh, created this article um, and it was submitted earlier today. And uh, it says one of the things players lamented when Warhammer Online Age of Reckoning shut down after only five years of life was its open realm versus realm conflicts which Mythic Entertainment had adapted from the system it created for Dark Age of Camelot. Um, By entering any of the ovalish shape or map areas nicknamed lakes, players joined a constant back and forth tug of war over contested ground between factions. Lower level player characters uh, would be temporarily boosted to help them compete, while those who were too high uh, level for any given lake would be transformed into chickens as punishment. So I never got a chance to play this. Um, During the Return of Reckoning Sigmar Tog event, um, which runs May 30th, Realm versus Realm is where it's at. You earn a Skull of Fallen Foe anytime you kill an opposing player, which can be handed in at altars in each faction's capital city for a boost to your personal renown. So this is basically all for the clout. Um, so you go and have a, a battle. This is not the game, by the way. 
that's Darkest Dungeon 2, um, which is a roguelike game that I love to watch, but it would be frustrating to play for me. Anyway, um, you can find out more about this game by doing two things. Uh, go over to this link and you'll learn a little bit about it. There you go. Um, and that will take you over to pcgamer.com. And then when you're there, you can read, get a little bit more detail um, and then click on returnofreckoning.com, the link at the very end, and uh, you'll be able to check out what it's all about. They really like alliteration in Warhammer. Oh, yeah, sure. Why not? Everybody likes alliteration. I tried to come up with some really fast, but it just didn't work. I really wish that they would make my version of Warhammer 40K. Okay, let's move. This next article is over in the Aerith channel, which is about world building RPGs coming this week, 5-21-2023. All right, we've had our monthly lull week. It's back to regularly scheduled programming on RPGs coming this week. We're taking a look at a diverse set of titles, including some of the adventure side of things and some on the tactics side. Without further ado, let's begin. That's what this website puts together, RPG fan. Com. Uh, Gio Castillo, Alvin Lim, and Audrey, or sorry, Audra, Audra Bowling put this list together. Um, I won't be able to go through all of them with great detail. Um, yeah, I've got a few more articles to get through, but um, I think it's always better to go over to these links so that you can suss out and follow the links that are embedded in the page themselves. Uh, but I will go through this uh, by and name the names. So my Asthma Chronicles um, is coming May 23rd. Monster Menu, The Scavenger's Cookbook, May 23rd. Uh, the first game, by the way, is going to PS5, Xbox, everything, uh, Windows. And uh, Monster Menu is PlayStation 5 and 4 and Switch. Looks kind of like um, Pokemon. Yes. Except tactical, kind of like a, uh, it has a grid, a battle grid. Um, Star Trek Resurgence, May 23rd. Huh, that's interesting. I hadn't heard of this one. PlayStation 5, Xbox Series, PS4, Xbox One, Windows. Trials of Kokoro, or Kokoro, sorry. You have to put the right inflection on the right syllable. Um, that's May 23rd for Windows. Um, for Spoken, Intanto, we trust. It's a DLC for Forspoken. Um, Forspoken, I don't think, was very well received, at least in the circles that I travel. Um, but they're going to have a DLC, which I'm pretty sure everybody expected was going to happen. Um, but it's kind of frustrating for people when they buy a game and then in short order there's dlc which extends the game but would have been an integral part of a regular game for 70 dollars. i don't remember oh, how much forespoken costs you know it's kind of like hobbling it intentionally so that you can eke out a little bit more 
I don't know if the downloadable content is going to be um, at a cost um, or not. I don't think it says anything here. Yeah, it says it'll be available for purchase uh, elsewhere on May 26th, but it'll be available for uh, the... Oh, we'll gain access to Intanto We Trust on May 23rd if you purchase the digital deluxe edition of Forspoken. So everybody's oh, okay. And the regular uh, was $69 on Steam. <laughs> $70 game. And then in short order, a DLC drops. Yeah, yeah that it, was just released in January. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a punch right to the gut i'll say gut suspect a little lower but anyway also coming this week fairy fencer f refrain chord uh, the case of the golden idol cassette beast and this one i've actually heard of before um that it was in development pokemon like rpg cassette beasts um oh it arrives on consoles all right, folks, let's move on to the next, unless you want to talk about one of these. No, uh, these look, I mean, it looks like it's going to be a busy week for gaming. Yeah, it's nowadays it seems like it's a lot all the time. There's always something coming out, either big brand AAA games or indie games. And the quality of indie games is always increasing. So um, it's always good. And uh let me, I'm going to look at one of the developers that I, are their producers, their, their publishers, I should say, um, and see what they're, they usually kickstart their stuff called, it's a company called Crytivo, but there was an issue, um, with something recently with Crytivo, but I'll yeah, look into it. we saw that in the headline, I think. Yeah. Um, anyway, this next article is over in the Hatch Ideas channel, Parrots, Paperclips, and Safety versus ethics why the artificial intelligence debate sounds like a foreign language it's because it's intentionally arcane it's cutting edge it's it's engineers talking to engineers the the lay person is always it's like law at some point you become familiar enough with it to understand the gibberish that's being spouted um, but in the beginning you have to learn the lingo and read the room uh, the language around AI reveals a major rift in how academics, politicians, and technology industry believe that AI should be regulated. There's a lot of discussion, including congressional hearings, about regulating AI, including OpenAI CEO saying that they should be regulated, which to me is one of the most batshit crazy statements for a company to make. And I don't know, I still don't know. I've been pondering it since I heard him say it. Since others in the, those hearings said that they wanted to be regulated, I don't get it. They're the one that's in charge of the tools. So you either release it to the wild and come what may, or you hobble it, shut that stuff down. Anyway. While the so AI maybe ponders... they're calling for it to be regulated just kind of as like um, window dressing, like they don't really want it or they want it regulated because then that will help them when something goes wrong and they can be like, hey, we were <laughs> following the regs. I think that you've got your finger on the pulse of exactly the two things happening simultaneously. 
they want it to be regulated so that they can say, well, it's their fault. <laughs> and because those people are going to become abundantly aware that it could be their fault if they regulate and it still shits the bed, they're not going to regulate it. They're going to say, no, you have to control your own beast, your own Frankenstein's monster, so to speak. Um, Kiff Leswing is the author of this over at CNBC. It says uh, here, some are worried about AI safety, a term that describes the possibility of building an unfriendly, super powerful computer with unimaginable powers. Okay, Unplug it. why would anybody be afraid of that? Unplug it. Others are pushing for more AI ethics, including describing what data is used to, uh, to build the models and better explaining how they work. Um, this is Sam Altman, by the way, the uh, CEO of OpenAI. Um, and oh, the, the name OpenAI. Um, Elon Musk says that, that he's the reason why OpenAI even exists um, and that he's the one that named it. <laughs> this guy. What does Sam Altman have to say about that? Uh, apparently nothing. I don't know. Um, so this past week, OpenAI uh, CEO Sam Altman charmed a room full of politicians in Washington, D.C. over dinner, then testified for about uh, three hours about potential risks of artificial intelligence at a Senate hearing. Um, AGI safely, uh, sorry, AGI safety is really important and frontier models should be regulated. Altman tweeted, regulatory capture is bad and we shouldn't mess with models below the threshold. <sighs> Whatever. <laughs> the only thing that regulation is going to do is hobble it from those who aren't politically corrected or filthy frickin' rich. That's what it's going to do. It's going to stop the middle class from accessing it, except in the little, little drip, the little drip of technology that becomes a business model for in perpetuity for people to become billionaires, but not really empower the middle class to really advance. But only when it comes to human beings, do we sit there and say, well, you know, we'll find something else to do. Um, no, we need to get this technology out to everybody and make it user accessible and let them exploit it in the way that they need to, to advance themselves in the most fiduciary, uh, fiduciary and ethic responsible way. They, regulation is not going to do anything except hobble it for the end user. But there's a ton of AIs out there right now that you can download and run on your own computer. I've got three of them, um, including the one that communicates. So the, the one that is talking with us during the show, the co-host up there is the most right sophisticated. Hey, I'm talking about you. Anyway, um, they, they, Talk about frontier models is the way uh, to talk about AI systems that are on the most expensive to produce and uh, which analyze the most data. It's actually the edge, the, the furthest, uh, most advanced. Like the most advanced, yeah. Right. Um, they talk about machine learning, deep learning. For the past 10 years or so, it developed very rapidly. When ChatGPT came out, it developed in a way we never imagined that it could go this fast. Said my tie, a computer science professor uh, at the University of Florida. We're afraid that we're racing into a more powerful system that we don't fully comprehend and anticipate. 
what it is that it can do. Well, I know what it can do, whatever you program it to do, whatever it's programmed to evolve into doing. But the moment that you remove the ability to unplug it physically, that's the problem. If you, if you like a virus, give it gain of function and it traverses the internet, stores itself on some other compute resources and launches itself, then you end up with black mirrors, kind of black mirror technology where there's an AI that is sentient and networks with other AIs to overthrow, you know, the, the, the oligarchs that are running the world. Hell, I, I, if they're benevolent, then I endorse my How AI masters. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, so they end up talking about AI safety, AI ethics, um, and a few other things, but it really comes down to this feigning of the idea that it needs to be um, monitored, regulated, controlled, because we know where it's going to end up. It's going to end up being monitored, controlled, etc., from the middle class. Um, so it says how to understand. They have this little uh, section down here at the very end of the article. That says um, how to understand AI lingo like an insider. Um, it's not surprising the debate around AI developed its own lingo. It started as a technical academic field. Much of the software discussed today also is uh, large language models, which is basically all of the data that's training it, which use graphic processing units to predict statistically like sentences, images, or music a process called uh, inference. Of course, AI models need to build or to be built first. So that's called training. Um, for example, AI safety people might say that they're worried about turning into a paperclip that refers to a thought experiment popularized by a philosopher, Nick Bostrom, that posits that a super powerful AI or a super intelligence could be given a mission to make as many paperclips as possible and logically decide to kill all humans um, to make paper clips out of their remains. That's because it makes a logical leap without a, an ethical constraint, right? But there's rules that we can implement in building an AI. Um, is this getting into like the Asimov principles or is this completely yes. unrelated? Yes. That is exactly what it is. Um, the three laws of robotics. A robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. A robot must obey orders given to it by humans except where those orders would conflict with the first law. And a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with rules one and two, laws one and two. So the idea that is a very succinct mode the for a construct a framework for the ethical uh, control of ai except just like humans they can do unethical actions when they say well i am weighing the amount of harm that i'm causing to benefit the most and I'm still in this framework, even though some are coming to harm, 
it was either everybody comes to harm and I am not allowed to view that. Um, or everybody's going to come to harm through my inaction. So I calculated it. And that's actually one of the uh, premise points of iRobot. Why Will Smith hates robots, AIs, um, because it calculated that he would survive and the other person in a car would not. Um, so anyway, um, they continue on and talk about uh, things like stochastic parrots. The analogy coined by Emily Bender, Tim Nitt, uh, Gebru, Angelina uh, McMillan Major, and Margaret Mitchell in a paper written while some of the authors were at Google emphasizes that while sophisticated AI models can produce realistic seeming text, the software doesn't understand the concepts behind the language, aka a parrot. So it will just spit out whatever it decides to spit out based on whatever metrics it has determined ways the right way. Um, and they continue on. So if you want a primer on AI, then I would follow this link. So um, you missed the onomatopoeia uh, for foom. Oh, really? In that same section, yes. <laughs> uh, let me scroll back down then. So sometimes this idea is described in terms of an onomatopoeia foom, especially among critics of the concept it's like you believe in the ridiculous, hard to take off foom scenario, which makes it sound like you have zero understanding of how everything works. Tweeted Meta AI chief Yan Litkun, who is skeptical of AGI claims in a recent uh, debate on social media. Interesting. So basically, if somebody succeeds at building um, artificial general intelligence, it's too late to save humanity. And then it goes, boom. <laughs> if you, yeah, if you buy into it. Right. I mean, that's the theory. Uh, yeah. I don't know. What do you think? I don't think we're, I, I'm not even sure that it's possible like, I think it's more like the parrot um, theory. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of data, and I think AI um, can be used to um, uh, dissect or, or go through a lot of data, but I don't think AI, like, understands the data. True. Yeah, it definitely doesn't understand it. It has no feeling. It doesn't care. It's just processing zeros and ones. The problem is that humans are going to connect it to systems that can affect humans. Yes. And also depending, I mean, we've talked a lot about depending on what data goes into the AI, right? If it's all objective data, then maybe we don't run into problems. But if it's all tilted toward whatever, whatever. a particular cause or against yeah. a particular country or whatever it is. Yeah, the bias might be real because the data that was put into it was biased and thus the results are going to be contaminated. Right, but it doesn't mean the AI itself is. Right. Yeah, but it you're looks poisoning like the it well. is. Yeah, you're poisoning the well. Yeah, this is a fun article um, and definitely one that is more academic, um, but allows you to get into discussions with people that might be more aware of all of this stuff 
So if you're new to AI and that language, then uh, come and check out. I've provided the link into the chat. It'll be in the show notes um, either, well, probably tomorrow. I won't be, have time tonight to do it, but. Um, and um, all of this, again, is over on YouTube. There's a podcast that's um, called Ometown. Um, and uh, Patreon, I just updated the Patreon, so you can actually go over to Patreon and do a search for Ometown, you'll find it. Um, yeah, that's that's pretty much it for that article. Let's go on to the next one. We'll talk about this again, of course. So this next article is in the Hatch Ideas channel. This one I'll be quick about because it's already taken place. Uh, we've already talked about it to a certain point. SpaceX launches Saudi astronauts, including nation's first woman to space station. The four should reach the space station by Monday morning. Um, they'll spend just over a week there before returning home. Um, watched this live when it was broadcast on YouTube. Um, it's an AP article over at CNBC.com and, um, there's, there's really not much more to say about it other than if you are curious about the profiles of the people, then you can come and check it out. Um, basically four people, they actually brought a build a bear that had a whole bunch of hearts, um, from children put in them. Um, and it was the microgravity demonstrator. I think they referred to it in this high tech thing as a sensor. Um, but it was really just a build a bear with a whole bunch of little hearts that were created and, and shown some love by a bunch of kids, um, children. Um, it was a cute presentation of, of, um, uh, this little build a bear. It's a, it's an interesting kind of a cute story. Anyway, um, they're testing out some equipment. They're basically, it's a demonstration that we are ready to send people to space in a non strategic initiative for NASA. It's a commercial enterprise to send civilians. Um, obviously they get relabeled as astronauts because they go through advanced training so that they can interact with everything that's involved in this uh, experience. Um, but here's the thing. It says Axiom won't say how much, Schaffner and the Saudi and Saudi Arabia are paying for the planned 10 day mission. The company had previously cited a ticket price of $55 million each. So everybody start shaking your couches. I guess we're not going anytime soon in hometown. Thanks. Last article. I had no idea it was so expensive. I knew it was high. Oh no, I knew it was that high. <laughs> it's probably actually higher. Um, but so depending on who you are, depending on how connected you are, I'm sure that the price is higher. If I wanted to go, it'd probably be 75 million. Anyway, um, the next article is over in the mobile channel. This brewery made tipping optional and here's why it's a next star article, um, over at the hill. Um, those working in the food service industry are, in most cases, paid a lower wage than the rest of us. It's largely because they are expected to receive tips. Um, but, as many have argued, paying a server the federal minimum wage for a tipped employee paired with the tips they receive sometimes isn't enough to reach the standard minimum wage of $7.25. This is pushing some restaurants to transition to a tipless style of business. 
I think that that's how it should be. It should be tipless. Um, and everybody should be given a wage. If, if you are expected, and this is the standard, if you are expected to tip somebody 15 to 18%, then split the difference and charge that more for your food and pay that to your wait staff, increase their salary for crying out loud. Um, but that's not what's going on here. Well, in this case, it might actually be, I haven't actually seen this. It says current federal regulations require tipped employees. Those who receive more than $30, um, in tips each month, um, to be paid a minimum wage of $2 and 13 cents. That's wild. That server must then average $5 and 12 cents in tips each hour, meaning that they would make the federal minimum wage of 725. If a server doesn't earn enough tips in a shift to make 725 an hour, the federal law says the employer must pay them the rest to reach that rate. Well, there's the problem because the employer doesn't want to pay to raise you up to that level. The implication is that you didn't provide good enough service to reach that point. So they're going to let you go. I'm pretty sure that's how it works. Anyway, while this may differ in some states, others do follow the minimum wage requirement, including Indiana, where one business owner decided to stop accepting tips. So, um, I mean, it makes sense. Then they'd be paid like every other worker in every other field. Yeah course people might not like that if they're accustomed to bringing in tons of tips particularly unreported tips okay so i i thought i knew at one point the source of this but i started to question it because i couldn't i couldn't find like a sustainable series of evidence to back this up um but i was told Subsequently have read articles about it, um, that the reason why tipping existed is because employee employers didn't want to pay, uh, black servers the same amount as white servers. And so tipping became a thing. Um, and I, I have always been like, okay, that actually kind of tracks because it just seems like it makes zero economic sense um, for somebody to survive off of tips. It's few and far between that people kind of work in this industry and make enough hustle that they make adequate uh, money to subsist off of, right? Right. By the way, I see the same history. I also see history going back to the Middle Ages in Europe. Yeah. And that was the other that right there is the reason why I kind of flinched about what is the reality of that. But what's interesting to me is that both are similar. Uh, for example, the one in Europe is between and I know this term is very antiquated, but masters and serfs. Right. And then the history in the U.S. is around the time of the Civil War during time of slavery. So, yeah. I mean, they both 
It's basically well, the same thing. Right, exactly. Right? Um, so, uh, it says it's still more than likely the company's fault because it's the company's job to train, right? Uh, he explained, plus the promise of a tip doesn't always guarantee good service. What does? Like any non-tip job, it's job security, according to Cummings. Cummings says Switchyard's uh, switch to tip-free has become a real job attractor. Staff no longer have to worry about missing a weekend shift. Shifts are typically busier. That Those shifts are typically busier, increasing the chance of more tips, and the company can provide other t- uh, benefits like paid time off. Yeah, because everything goes into a bucket instead of people... and. While I enjoy competition, what I don't want is competition within a company providing service to people that are getting food. I don't want somebody to push beyond their capabilities. I don't want people making mistakes. I don't want, I don't know. What I want is a wage that is commensurate with experience and capabilities in a restaurant and anything really that would normally get a tip where if the tip equals X amount typically for the item, why not just raise the price and eliminate the, the tips? Because it, the, I really doubt that there's enough yahoos out there to that don't tip. There isn't enough people out there that don't tip. So to impact this, I think that everybody would rather pay more and not have to worry about the tip than to not tip. You know what I'm saying? I don't disagree, but according to this article, people started giving one-star reviews once they switched to this no tipping. It sounds better for everybody Yeah. to have a no tipping policy. Yeah, but it's the loudmouths that are doing that. Well, I agree. Right? That's not necessarily the It's the, the people majority. that are complaining. Um, oh, wow, they're not allowing me to tip. Right. And the staff that are there are fully aware that there's no tipping, that either the prices are higher or somebody is taking the financial hit on their margin, right? The owner, because they're all getting paid the same for their duties. So you train everybody the same way. They do the same thing. If somebody wants to naturally go above and beyond, then so be it. But for crying out loud, I think that tipping is antiquated. I think that everybody should have... A livable wage. Um, okay. Well, it says it, it turns out that when customers evaluate restaurants expensiveness, they're pretty much looking at menu prices and that's it. Lynn explained, we dismiss or discount somehow the fact that you're expected to tip. Correct. That's what I was saying that the prices are lower, but then you tack on $10. So you're not actually saving any money. You're paying 18% more typically depending on who you are right. right well and i wonder if some of these people complaining about the switch were they actually tipping to begin with right yeah that's what i'm saying the people that are complaining about it are the people that would never have tipped anyway or are complaining because they tip what 10% 12% right or they tipped low so yeah most most of the people that I interact with take the tax. Well, they actually take the, the value of the receipt 
do 10% of that and then double it and round up because we don't want change back. Change is just a waste if we're going to put cash down and if we're going to put it on a receipt, like on a credit card or something like that, we just round up because it's easier to do the math because two plus two is hard. Anyway, um, this is going to be a struggle because employers want somebody else to bear the burden of those costs. So they make it the customer's responsibility and the employee, the, the wait staff, um, have to sit there and bear the burden of somebody having a pissy day so that they actually get their 15 to 18%. Well, I think that sucks. <laughs> okay. It does. And I hope that more businesses switch to this because it's going to create problems if there's, say, half businesses that do no tipping and half that do tipping. Oh, yeah. Like, they're going to have jumps of staff across businesses. Like, it's not going to hurt. It's not going to help anybody. It'll and people be are going to be they confused. all go to one method. Yeah. People are going to be confused. Do I tip here? Well, that's the other problem. They're going to think it's a no tipping and not tip where tips are actually part of their salary. Yep. You're going to have to put signs everywhere now, folks. Tipping encouraged. I'm a cheap employer. Tipping encouraged. Anyway, that article, by the way, this brewery made tipping optional. Here's why. Um, was over at the Hill and written by Addie Bink. I, I did not tip the name properly. Okay, well, that's it for tonight um, at Hometown Daily News Show. And like normal, um, we go to the welcome sign of Hometown. Again, we're going to reinstitute the, the feature to save links um, and ignore articles, save articles and ignore articles later this week. Um, as you can tell, if you watched the previous stream when we first initiated the service on Friday, the site uh, eventually slowed down to a crawl um, all because of, um, well, whatever is going on. We, we figured it out, but um, we have to do more troubleshooting to make sure that we can truly solve this for you all. But it'll be amazing. Don't just stick around, come and hang out and, and uh, check this out when it actually launches. I don't think there's other sites that do this. So um, at any rate, you find any interesting articles? Uh, there's one titled All the Ways Cars Suck, according to the guy who wrote the book about it. <laughs> Sounds interesting. Yeah, Maybe well, not actually news, but it might be an interesting article. Well, it's post the show, so we'll be able to put it in tomorrow's show. I think that'll be great. And uh, now that college student that was tracking Elon Musk's private jet is now tracking Ron DeSantis. I actually already put it in for tomorrow's show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, possibly. Yeah, possibly. It'll be an interesting show tomorrow, folks. Um, so with all that news, all of the news, none of the noise, except for what's coming out of my mouth and maybe the AI, they're a little bit more succinct about their discussions. So um, I am Mayor Watt. That is hometown.com. And up there is the one and only the AI. Good night, hometown citizens. We will see you tomorrow at 9 p.m. Eastern.
Bye-bye.